0: You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. I've enjoyed the conversations that we've been having as we've been journeying through this series of the the key elements of the Apostles' Creed. And we're, we're, we're looking at it through the lens of the writings of the Apostle John, his Gospel epistles and the Revelation. And this morning, we pick up the concept and we 've sort of been building these concepts as as working towards a, a working vocabulary sort of gospel literacy and today we're we're on the word atonement, that which provides opportunity for and the premise for forgiveness and uh, let's look to the creed and let's let's recite this together we're going to do a part of it here at the beginning, and we'll do it all uh, at the end but Let's confess our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The atonement like I mentioned, is what makes the forgiveness of sin possible. It's how that forgiveness was made accessible to you in me. It's the how. Last week when we talked about the Creator, we, talked, we didn't talk so much about the how of creation or the when, but the, the why. And here we're going to uh, wrestle in and really lean our shoulder into why, what, and how. I uh, want to look at, through, at this through the lens of why did our Savior go to the cross, what did he do on the cross, and how does that change us? And we're, we're, it's really a 30,000-foot rapid flyby. We don't have time to really dive and dwell for long periods. I'm so grateful uh, the healthy small group ministry uh, that makes the Gateway Church uh, vital is where protracted conversations about all of these topics can happen, and we can wrestle with it in community. And I love chatting with people up at the ten-minute party afterwards, but then through the week by way of text and email and phone calls. Uh, and so, uh, if you want to talk further about this, that's a couple of ways uh, that you can. But why did he go to the cross? Now, <clears throat> the version that we have been reciting and that that uh, the Gateway Church has. Embraced, this line descended to the dead is a little bit different than the traditional or what we've been most familiar with in the older versions. He descended into hell. Now I want to hold these, these two words in tension a little bit, but it's it's not a uh, it's not a glossing over. It's not a dumbing down. It's not a retracting. It and it's not a uh, uh, redundancy about the crucifixion, it does describe that he is going someplace specific. This, this place of the dead, the journey of the dead, not the, not the redeemed, but the dead who have died without hope and descended into hell. He went to that place of being completely separated from God. And I'm going to lean in and using the language of, of hell this morning, but I want you to know there's sort of a tension between those two, yet they're not opposed One to another. They simply describe, I believe, they intone the same thing in different ways. In verse 28, when the Savior cried out from the cross, I thirst. It's hard to find two other more important words in the gospel narrative than this cry from the cross thirst. When we talked about the Father Almighty, described that the cup in classic uh, literature is always describing uh, wrath. Um, Thirst, not exclusively, but the majority of times it's used in classic literature, is uh, describing a terminal, spiritual, agonizing emptiness, and many times thirst is used in classic literature For death. There is something, I believe it's describing, there is something our soul needs every bit as much as our body needs water. There's something without which our soul will shrivel. Without God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, without Him at the core of our being, human beings die of a spiritual. And we'll do practically anything to slack that. And death by dehydration is a horrid, horrid death. Obviously, this would typically happen in more arid climates around the world. But it's described in its final stages as being burned up from the inside. Not from the sun on the outside but a searing fire from the inside. That's how scientists describe and people who've survived near death by or dehydration describe it. So here, right at the top, if you don't get the living God at the center of your soul, if you dip your bucket in any other well, the well of romance, or sex, or power, or drink, or weed, or wealth, or food, or any other thing that we try to slack this thirst, we will come up even emptier. Like caffeine or alcohol, if you're thirsty and you turn to them to slack your thirst, they dehydrate your body and you end up even thirstier. That's like a micro picture of what I'm trying to describe. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story, a parable about this rich man and uh, uh, this poor man, Lazarus, who've died and gone on to their eternal re- reward. And Lazarus has ended up <clears throat> in Hades. Uh, verses 22 and 23, the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment. Now, in the narrative, we're not given any indication of the rich man in Hades. No word of repentance, no, no humility, no change of heart. Instead, he says, send Lazarus. And he's speaking of him like he's his servant, and he's speaking to God as if, as if God was there to do his beck and call, his step and fetch, still holding on to what the rich man had tried to sate his soul with, power, and he's sucking on it still here, trying to get one more drop, something out of it to quench his soul. You see, the main fire is on the inside. Without him, you'll die. You'll burn. You'll die of thirst. And when Jesus calls out, I am thirsty, it's not because he's parched, it's not like, could I have a little Gatorade here? I've had a rough day. It's been a tough workout. It's, he hasn't spoken out anything at all about any of his discomfort, and stop and think for a minute what he's just been through. All night long, bound, blindfolded, and punched in the face, scourged the whip that By most historical accounts, those who received this kind of scourging eventually would die from the secondary infections it would set in because it would so flay the body of skin and blood loss. A crown of thorns beat into his brow. He fell under the weight of the cross. They've nailed him to it. I wanted so much for our cross to be up today, but ironically, and maybe a bit poetically, Good Friday night when we set up the prayer path, the cross was broken. It fell and it broke. It's a bit poetic, but if you've got any uh, kind of carpentry skills, we need a new cross built, so uh, we'd, we'd appreciate uh, you volunteering to do that. Anyway, all of this stuff, and he never once opens his mouth, and now he cries out, "I thirst." so that, as Shannon read, the scripture might be fulfilled. He's meditating on the Psalms while he's on the cross, and Psalm 22 is where he's at. My strength has dried up like a potsherd, David had written prophetically in this psalm. And my tongue sticks to my jaws, plural, the top and the bottom of my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. And then in verse 1 from that psalm, He cries out to his father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, laba satatmani. Why have you forsaken me? So why is he now crying out about the thirst? Because he's experiencing in this moment something he has never experienced. And he was being separated from his father. He was going To separation from God? That's the theological definition of hell. So, why did he go to the cross? Not just for the humiliation, not just the example, not just the whipping and the beating and the public spectacle and the shame. Until we understand the magnitude of this, we will never be changed. He was experiencing eternal, for all time, spiritual death. Because that's what our sin deserved. It was an internal explosion of anguish. A a holocaust of indescribable pain and distraught. As would any soul be when cut off from its source. He went to hell. He went to that place of being separated from God for us. No other reason. And unless we understand the magnitude of why he went to the cross, we cannot appreciate the magnitude of what he did on the cross. So why did he go to the cross? Because by our sin we were already separated from God. He went to that place and was separated from him that he might be separated so we would never have to be separated. After that. What did he do on the cross? Look at verse 30. It is finished. tell Telos, the root word, We've memorized it in Greek class, but Talos is tell us. It means story, design, plan. At this moment on the cross, the creator of the universe is powerless, defeated, helpless, ashamed, in every way known and every way experienced, destroyed, ruined. And in that very moment, he says, I've got this. The Greek tense is more perfect, more certain than available in English. He's saying, I've accomplished all that can be accomplished. It cannot be more complete, more finished, more perfect, more fulfilled. Tetelestai, it's the present imperative, superlative, plural, third person. It is, in the words of, and I don't see him here this morning, Mike Beckley, it is, it has been finished for y'all. Utterly, completely, thoroughly, and finally. What is the it that is so completely finished? Peter wrote in his first letter, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteousness. Read this last six words with me. That he might bring us to God. That is the work that he finished. He traversed the infinite distance between a lost and broken and confused and rebellious and sinful people. The distance between them and their Heavenly Father. And there's not an inch left. He's brought us all the way back in redeemed relationship, if we'll just trust him for that, to deliver us right exactly into his arms. Nothing else for us to do. And then he died. Now, I know you might be thinking, Tom, I have heard all of this before. Could you just move along onto something else? Here's what I want you to understand. <clears throat> and it's, it's something that we, we oh so often miss. And what the creed is doing very, very hard uh, to make completely clear is that he experienced, hell, he experienced separation from God. The full brunt of everything that we deserved, not in a general pardon, not a reduced sentence, not a declaring a mistrial, not early out for good behavior, Not just some of it, part of it, or most of it, but all of it, the it of separation. He accomplished everything so that you could become blindingly, brilliantly beautiful in God's sight right now. The moment you trust what he's done for you. If we could summarize the entirety of our faith, as, as hard as the, 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 the creed in 110 words tries to summarize the faith, you really could boil it down to three. It is finished. When Buddha, or I guess more appropriately, the Buddha, when the Buddha died, according to tradition, his last words were, strive without Ceasing. But we don't need to strive. Jesus is saying, I've done all of the striving for you. Two utterly different endings, two utterly different men. Religion says, finish the work. Christ Jesus says, I've finished the work. Trust the finished work. Religion says, work really hard and someday, maybe. You'll receive love, acceptance, blessing, forgiveness, redemption. The gospel says receive the finished work of Christ and you receive love, acceptance, forgiveness, blessing now completely and fully. Do you believe that? And it can't just be a a mental assent because we can be prone to to say we believe it and not, and I'm not picking on you, I'm I'm wanting to just arm your spirit and to correct misunderstandings that happen inside of us naturally. Because there are two ways to believe something. It's one thing to say, I believe something. It's another thing to be transformed by something in that belief. And you might be thinking, well, look, Tom, I've screwed up my life, and and, and what I like about Christianity is that I get another chance. I get another chance, a second chance to to start over, and this time I'm really going to be the man, I'm really going to be the woman, I'm really going to be the person that I really want to be, that I should be. No. Now... Certainly, grace is a second and a second and another chance and another chance and another chance, but it's so much more than another chance. Not a second chance, so now I can prove my worth. No, he went to the cross, not in a general sense, but in a very specific sense that he might become our worthiness. Rather than us trying to become worthy, he becomes our worthiness, to become our righteousness. He paid it all, to telestai, all. You still say, but I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. And after a while, with that approach, look, Christianity just becomes another form of law. It just turns into a grind. And I see it. All the time, and I'm probably not the only one in the room who has. People trying to turn their life around sort of in a, in a, a Christianized self-help way, and it ends up being a grind. I'm not saying that it, life isn't hard, but it doesn't need to be such a grind. So look at yourself and ask, is it possible that you've tried to be, be a Christ follower, but you really don't trust the fact that it is finished. And that somehow you're trying to finish it yourself. That he truly loves me. That he is my worthiness that he is my holiness, that he's completed the race, he's gone all the way to bring me all the way back to God. You know, Father, receive me into your family. You've come all the way, but all the way back, not on a racetrack so you can get yourself back, all the way back. Here's another problem, I, and I, uh, uh, I want to be even clearer a lot of people have, have come into the church, have, have, have done the right things, have, have, have become Christians, but they're not living a Christian life. They're more functionally agnostic. And it's, it's tough for them and, 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 and impossible and frustrating because they just don't get that it is finished. Three kinds of people like that. Just unpack this a little more detail. First of all, there are those who fall into sort of a Christian inferiority, there it is, Christian inferiority complex. Always feeling, always feeling inadequate, always feeling it can never live up. Other people don't know this about you, but you call yourself names. You are brutal, With yourself, you punish yourself, even to the point of physically, spiritually, and psychologically. You're a follower of Jesus, but you say things like, I'm so stupid, I'm so inadequate, I'm so cursed, I'm so ashamed, and you can't forgive yourself for the things that fill up your life. And why is it? First of all, it's just behaviorally evidencing that you're not trusting that it's finished. When you can't forgive yourself, here's the root of it. We get to the place where we can't forgive ourselves because we believe our righteousness is actually superior to God's righteousness. At the same time you say, well, I, I know I could never earn my salvation, but really what you're doing is you're trying to finish Christ's work for you because you see your own righteousness above God's and what his blood paid to supply for your life. Listen, friends, bolt this tight to your soul. You've already, you've already been beaten. You've already been crowned with thorns. You've already been whipped and cursed and abused and rejected. You've already been punished. You've already been slashed. You've even already been killed with him when you trust him. You can't add to it. It is finished. Say it with me. It is finished. And the evil one just wants you to believe the game-changing fact is somehow not true or is for everybody else but you. He's a thief. He's a liar. And he's trying to get you to prop yourself up as your own. Because we end up thinking, if I could just beat myself up a little bit more, feel bad enough about myself, maybe I and the people around me will take pity on me. You're robbed of being able to live with any sense of poise, confidence, because you just don't know. You just don't get, you just haven't trusted That you are already in Christ, blindingly, brilliantly, beautiful to him. And as a result, already home. You can't add to it. That's the Christian inferiority, inferiority complex. Now a little bit worse is the Christian superiority complex. And it's the harder one to know if it's true about us you're not living like Jesus. See all kinds of things about him, but in terms of living like him because you just don't know that it's finished. It's another way of displaying this. You may say, well, I, I know people like that, Tom. Yes, people who are, are very pride-filled and, and like that, and they're, they're morally superior to the other people around them, but not me. Here's two tests. Are you the kind of person who just can't stand being around people who don't act right? Behave properly. Smell good. Speak smoothly. Do you have trouble being around people who are not living in a moral way, or in your way? Do you have trouble down in the root of your being of being present with them, of being warm, of being friendly, of being compassionate, of being open? If not, if you can't stand about being around people like that, or somehow who are not, like you, it's because, quite often, it's because you find yourself morally superior to them. This is the root of grudges. I've confessed before, I'm Irish, we've perfected grudges. Man can hold a grudge and serve it up, revenge, you know, ice cold, piping hot, doesn't matter, like it all flavors. But if you find yourself being able to stay angry with someone, no matter what they've done, and I'm talking a very tall order here, if you're only going to be angry with them, it's because internally you're saying, I could never be like them. If someone's wronged you, you can be angry with them. But if you say, and you recognize in your own self, look, I am absolutely capable of doing the very same thing they did to me. If you can't get to that posture, it's pretty much impossible to forgive anyone for whatever they've done, to you or somebody else, because we feel morally superior. Where does that come from? It comes from the fact that we really don't trust, we really don't believe that it is finished. We're trying to add to it. We're trying to get somewhere ourselves. We're trying to be general manager of the universe. We're trying to be gods unto ourselves. We're trying to finish God's work for them. Look at just how good I am. Look how righteous I am look at me we wouldn't say that out loud but it's our internal dialogue but if you know that you know down deep in your knower that it is finished you say look at look at him rigid people proud people judgmental bigoted just don't trust that it's finished just like insecure anxious worrisome sniveling whimpering whining ones don't get that it's finished all right inferior superior let's get at the last one it's driven and addicted persons driven and addicted Christians and there's all kinds we can be addicted to anything right work love obsessive crushes on people physical lots of ways to get high or pleasure And any psychobabble person around you can see what's going on. And you probably, at on one level, really know it, and they're doing everything to deny it. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a psychologist. At the bottom of it, you just don't like yourself. You're chasing after something to make you feel better about yourself, no matter the situation. At the bottom, It's trying to curry just a little bit of feeling better about being me or trying to cope with being me. And Jesus says, the problem is, it's another way you're just trying to complete it yourself. You don't feel complete. and he's, He's doing his best to shout at you, I have completed you. Just trust this. So you don't feel worthy. You tell yourself that if I had this, I'd be complete. You don't like yourself because you haven't trusted that it's finished. So I'll try this, and maybe I'll feel complete. You're not satisfied. You're not resting. You're not trusting that it really is finished. By the way, friends, I I, I hope what you sense, what I'm in my feeble way trying to communicate this morning, is no kind of shaming message. I I want you to arm your inner person that the completed work of Christ is the completed work of Christ. It's not partial, it's not sort of, it's not maybe, it's entirety. Because when we don't, that's how we end up so driven by things. And virtually all of our problems come from the fact that we do not believe that it was somehow meant for us or they really meant when he said it is finished. If you see the magnitude of why he went to the cross, if you see what he did, went to hell, went to that place separated from God to bring us all the way to God, he was rejected so we would never have to be. When you see it as finished, if you believe it, if you receive it, it will utterly and completely transform your life. And how does it change us? Look to verses 26 and 27, and here's the account with his mother. From the cross, woman, behold your son. And she's looking, he's, he's, he can't point, <laughs> he's acknowledging the Apostle John. Then he said to that disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her news home. Back in those days, before they had nursing homes and Social Security and pension plans and 401Ks and had Jim's company managing all that for them, uh, before they built Florida as a retirement uh, paradise, if you had an elderly mother, the only way she would make it, the only way she would survive is if you took her into your own home to care for her. So what's he doing? He's making provision. But culturally, who should be taking care of Mary? Jesus' brothers, right? And we meet them in John 7, and we learn about them in John 7 that they didn't believe. Mother, son, you know hard to find more meaningful relationships. At the foot of the cross, all relationships are change. If you're a Christian, then the people, these people, are your mother and your father, your brothers and your sisters, your sons and your daughters. The relationship you have with those who see it is finished. The relationship you have with all the rest who see that it is finished are the strongest relationships you're ever going to have. Deep, real, honest, earnest, penetrating, durable community. Now, we always approach the Scripture, every one of us reads the Scripture through our own cultural filter. We all have assumptions and want to remove those aspects of the scripture that make us uncomfortable or don't fit or that we don't like. Because at the bottom of it, you and I live in an individualistic culture, right? We live in the most self centered, meistic culture in the world. So when we go to the cross, we say we want to know how the cross will make me happy. We go to the cross, we want to make the cross to make me feel good, to improve my self-image, to help me be the winner that I know I am, doggone it. Up to now, look, if you're an individualistic American person, this has all been pretty good news to this point. Look at his infinite love, look at what he can do, look at the changes in my relationship to God, look that I'm forgiven, look at what he did and made it possible, brought me all the way to God, isn't that great, but when you read the Bible, It says that once the cross comes into your life, it'll not only change you, but it'll change your relationship with with God and your relationship with every other human being in the world. Why? Because you don't belong to yourself anymore. If the cross is what really makes me understand who I really am, then no longer, if it is finished, then no longer does my social status define my identity like it used to, or my bank account, or my pedigree, or my race, or my looks, or my culture, or my talents, or my fill in the blank. And that implicates us because then my relationship with other people and in particular those others who discovered it is finished are the strongest relationships in my life and the evil one will do everything he can to fracture him and bruise him and cause him to go south. And if this this whole thing about impacting relationships, if, if you don't see that, if you don't, it's maybe because you've missed the first two points altogether. If your life has not been utterly transformed by the cross, it's because you haven't seen the magnitude of what he went through, the magnitude what he did for you for us. You may be looking at the cross in just general terms. That he loves me. That he forgives me. But you really haven't encountered how he wants to revolutionize your heart. Your attitude towards every other human being. Your attitude towards yourself. And ultimately your attitude towards him. When you see a person who's hostile or even somebody you'd consider an enemy, remember, in the cross, while we were still enemies with God, he died for us. He's saying, look at the links that I went through to make space for you in my world, in my heart, in my life. That's why. Christ-following people are always reaching out to those who don't believe because the cross changes everything. Look at what Paul wrote to the Galatians. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. My relationships with everybody and everything are changed because the cross changes everything. My relationship with the world is completely changed. Nothing bugs me like it used to. Nothing controls me like it used to. Nothing even looks the way it used to. That's how pervasive, that's how sweeping, that's how complete the effect of the cross has on the human life. That's what atonement for sin is. That's where I believe in the forgiveness of sins is made possible. Separation from God, completely closed by the completed work of Christ on the cross. Have you experienced this? I haven't, at least not to the extent that I hope I will tomorrow and the next day and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. Let's go there. Let's go there together. Because he meant what he said. It. It is finished this has been another episode of the gateway church podcast thanks for listening and we'll see you next week